Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, new editions of age-old prayers. Basia Schachter grew up in an ultra-Orthodox Hasidic community with songs all around her. I'm not talking about rock songs or folk songs. I'm talking about Zmirot, the songs you sing after Shabbat meals, or Hanukkah songs, or songs you sing at Passover. After college, she traveled abroad. She learned how to play instruments from the Middle East, and she brought the sounds of the Middle East back home into her guitar. In 1998, she formed the band Pharaoh's Daughter, which took her on all sorts of adventures into other genres and themes. Now, with Pharaoh's Daughter, Basia Schechter returns to the religious songs that were her first introduction to music. On Dumia, the new album from Pharaoh's Daughter, Basia and her bandmates transform prayers and religious poems, usually sung on specific holidays, into lush, epic music to relish any time. Basia's been on our podcast before. She invited us over in 2011. And today we're back here, and we want to thank Basia for having us. Basia, welcome back to Vox Tablet. Thank you for having me. First, let's ask about the title. What does Dumia mean? Dumia actually means silence. And um, in the context of the prayer that it's from, the words are, Ulecha Dumia Tihila. For you, silence is praise. And um, it's talking about what the highest form of praise is to God is silence. And then basically it's impossible. So here's us trying to do the next best thing and create poetry and music and emotion. One of my favorite songs on the album and one which has particular resonance in the midst of this high holiday season is the song called Avraham. I'd love to listen to a little bit and then maybe you can tell us about it. It's gorgeous. What does it mean? I assume Avraham is Avraham, Abraham. Exactly. So um, this song has a little bit of a, a story around it. The chorus of the of the song is Avraham al teshlach yadcha al hanar va'al taslo meuma. Those words mean Avraham, don't hurt this boy. Don't do a thing to this boy. Meaning, this is the the angel stopping um, Abraham at the time of the akeda, the time of the binding from slaughtering his own child. The binding of Isaac, the sacrifice. We're talking about the sacrifice of Isaac. We're talking about the sacrifice of Isaac, right? So this is the exact moment that this is happening. Um, I was invited by a rabbi named Charlie Buckholz, who used to do these teachings with um, at the Bronfman Center, and he said he was doing a teaching on um, the the origins of shofar with a bunch of teachings, and he'd like me to work with some music. And he said, one origin of why we blow shofar is because of the tears of Sarah that she cried when she found out about the potential of Isaac's sacrifice. And he gave me text, like these words, the, you know, Avraham, the chorus of the song, had an inter- a Talmudic interpretation. And the first verse was he's saying to his father, don't tell mom, Sarah, about what you're doing when she's standing by a well or when she's standing on a roof because if you tell her, she's going to fall and die. 
So basically, it's this whole kind of midrashic storytelling experience that's happening in the verses. So um, this was the teaching he gave me, so I thought I wanted to create a musical piece. Um, I got together with Yakubu Sissoko, who is a chorus player, and while we were getting together and just kind of working on stuff, he started to play me a Malian lullaby. And he played me this beautiful Malian lullaby, and I just was like, it was gorgeous. And I suddenly realized that that lullaby was the chorus of the song. Now, this is not the kind of music that you grew up with. Is that right? Uh, for a number of reasons, no. One is that there was no Talmud. There's no Gemara for girls in the community I grew up. And there was no Malian Kora. And uh, no, this was not the music I grew up with. Well, can you tell us a little bit, what was your background? Um, I grew up in Borough Park. Um, an ultra-Orthodox Hasidic community in Brooklyn. It's the largest Orthodox community, I think, in the world. And um, I went to um, Beis Yaakov. It's a school for all girls. And in the summer, I actually went to a, a camp called Camp Enos, which means camp girls, and it was a girls' camp. And so um, it was very insular. We mostly studied Hebraic Jewish texts and how to become a better person and learn Torah and and we sat around also a lot of times and we sat around singing and one of the things that we did because I think it was such a such um, a community of people trying to fit in exactly the same is one thing I found beautiful is that we all tried to find our own harmony so when we'd ever sing together everybody would explore finding a harmony that wasn't sung by somebody else so that their voice could be heard in the chorus and in the harmony of all these girls singing together. And that's um, something that I've taken with me from my childhood is the ability to hear a harmony that's not being sung yet, to find another, another melody within the melody. And I think especially on this song, Avraham, if you hear the choruses, there's like so many different melodies of harmonies coming in and out, and I explored many. Your father was a singer, is that right? Yes, he had a, he was in a barbershop quartet, I think in the late 50s, and it was managed by Don Kirshner. Who is that? He had this show <laughs> called Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. He managed like so many famous people, and I have to Google that to find out exactly <laughs> who, and that gives you guys all an opportunity to go to your computers and Google Don Kirshner. But he, he, he managed a lot of really well-known people and um, he wrote a bunch of songs on his own. And after six months of shopping them to radio stations and not being successful, he decided to go back to yeshiva and study full-time. And when you were growing up, how much exposure did you have to secular music? Not a lot. Um, I'd say we had, it's funny because I remember like the three or four songs that were secular that I know. What are they? Um, and they, 
it's funny because two of them have the name Delilah in it. One was um, a song called Run, Samson, Run, Delilah's on her way. Run, Samson, Run, you ain't got time to pray. Which isn't even really a secular song since it's about biblical characters. Exactly. Well, this next Delilah song was. It was the Tom Jones murder story about a, a, a husband who, I saw the flickering shadow of love on her blinds. She stood there laughing. I took the knife from my hand and she laughed no more. My, 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 Delilah. Why, 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 Delilah? So before they come to break down the door, forgive me, Delilah, I just couldn't take any more. That's sad. Yeah. Did you have any kind of formal musical education as a child? No. A lot of the songs on this album, on Dumia, are prayers. Uh, I want to talk about the song called Ptah, which mm-hmm. is taken from the Yom Kippur liturgy. The prayer comes at the end of the holiday, right before Yom Kippur concludes, and it's basically asking that the gates of prayer, uh, that the gates of uh, heaven remain open and hear our prayer for atonement, give us one last chance to get it right before the uh, before before a decision is made about whether we're going to be inscribed in the Book of Life for the coming year. Now, usually, when I think of Yom Kippur, I think of a kind of solemn awesomeness, I mean, a sort of austerity and a kind of insularity in your thought and your meditation on yourself and your actions and your place in the world. Your version is so gorgeous. It's so rich. Uh, I want to hear a little bit of it right now. feels counterintuitive to have that uh, prayer sung with so much instrumentation. What made you decide to take that approach? Hmm. In terms of the instrumentation, you know, I think you keep building a song until it feels like it's, it's right. You know, sometimes it feels right with very little. And in, in, this, in this particular song, prayer, like it didn't feel right until we f- put all those instruments there for some reason. I think it's really all about emotion and stirring up a certain kind of emotion in oneself and in one's connection to the divine, however you see the divine. And a lot of people feel that in rock and roll. I mean, that's why rock and roll is so amazing and so big. And I'd say two artists, you know, there's Radiohead, um, and you too, sometimes they can achieve that kind of awesomeness or spaciousness in rock and roll through this kind of instrumentation. And I think that I was finding that kind of space in, in, the, in the song, that it just felt like it needed to go in that direction of like stadium rock and roll and big, slow beats and lush strings and recorders.
Are you still part of the community that you grew up with? Um, I'd say also no. What does it mean then to sort of revisit these liturgies and these uh, stories from the Bible and these kind of uh, religious rites year in, year out that were probably so intrinsic to your childhood? I think this is my way of leaving and not leaving. You know, the not leaving is the take the taking the most inspirational, emotional, um, connected things that are so deeply embedded and inside me. And you know, I'm I keep saying I'm just so indoctrinated, and I can't really fight that. There's just nothing I can really do. And f- and some of that indoctrination is actually quite lovely. And but to take the best that emotional connection that I have, and to kind of imbue that connection with the world that I've discovered on my own as someone who's been a world traveler, a spiritual seeker, and a musical delver, and try to put it all together and see how that comes through. So it's not leaving behind, but it's taking the best of what I felt and and developing it. Is there also something that you're abandoning that you're willfully saying goodbye to, and what is it? I think it's mostly... A censorship. I think there's a sense in the community that I grew up in that you could sing a song, but you can only sing it in a certain way. If you you can't sing it, you have to get a guy to sing it. If you wrote a song, if you're a woman, and I think what I strip away is like I want to move the way I want to move. I want to sing the way I want to sing. I want to integrate um, influences that I find inspiring, even if it's gritty and a little dirty and a little subversive. I like subversive because I don't believe I don't believe in true fidelity without subversiveness. It just doesn't work together for me, and I need both at the same time. And for me, there's something a little subversive about taking this prayer, which is like so solemn, and to also bring something dark and intense and, you know, so I think that's what I'm stripping away is the censorship, the limitations around what a woman can do with her heart and soul and her spirit. Let's talk about the song uh, Ribono on the album. Tell us a little bit about that song. Where does that come from? It's interesting. That's the only Yiddish song, a full Yiddish song, that's on the recording. And it's also a prayer, and it comes from a tradition called Trinus, which is uh, a body of prayers that were either written for women by the rabbis so that the women at home could sing their own prayers and say their own prayers, or by women, women themselves. The part that's actually not in the song is I have a memory of being in Camp Enos, Camp Old Girls, and there was a woman named Mrs. Rosenfeld, you know, we want Mrs. Rosenfeld, me want Mrs. Rosenfeld. And this little woman who was like 89 years old, or maybe 90, she would come up and she was about four foot six. And she would like start the Havdalah by the beginning of this prayer going, God for Avraham! You know, and she would she would just like like with this loud booming voice, and I was so as when I got when I got older, I, I, I was looking in one of these um, Zmiros books, and I saw that I was like, oh cool, I see this, and then further along, I see the the prayer Ribono Shalalam, which is the development of that particular prayer, which says, Master of the Universe, you know, as we we transition from one state to another, please give our children good luck and, and blessings and health 
and money, you know. So this is a prayer that is specifically uttered at Havdalah, yes. the service that distinguishes between the end of Shabbat and the beginning of the regular week. Exactly. So it's that prayer. And um, so I just started to compose to it because it's just it was such a, an emotional connection. Because as much as I didn't know what she was saying, I loved Mrs. Rosenfeld and I loved her chanting that prayer. And this was connect- and this was the same text. And um, interestingly enough, in June, um, at the end of Shavuot, or Shavuos, um, I went to Isabella Freeman to see Reb Zalman Shechter Shalomi Zichrona Levracha, who just passed away. He's the, the Rebbe, the big rabbi of the renewal movement. And I got a little yechidus, which is like a little alone time with him. That's what it's called when you get to see the Rebbe alone. They talk about that with the Lubavitch Rebbe. And I had just a little alone time with him, and he says, Basila, Basila, no, no, do you have a niggin for me? Do you have a new melody for me? Because he knows that I write melodies. And I just started singing this song. I said, Give deine liebe Kinderlach, kajach dich zu leiden und sich zu, dich zu dienen und weiter keinem nicht. So, um, and this was two days before he lost consciousness and he passed away in the beginning of July, just one month after that. Let's listen to a little bit of the version with the full orchestration. You grew up religious, and now in your day job, you work as the musical director for a congregation in Manhattan. In the summer, you're a cantor on Long Island and Fire Island. What strikes me is that this album is is a performance, and you will play these songs in performing venues, in concert venues. I wonder what it's like to blend prayer and performance, because for most of us, if we're going to pray, we're not doing it for other people to entertain them. Uh, we're doing it for ourselves. But you're sort of toggling this line between the two. Yeah, I think I think that line is kind of complex, because I feel like I have, in my prayer life, there's a there's a sense of, there's like a performative sense, possibly. But I think in my performative world, there's a very strong prayer sense, too. Like a very strong, like, I'm just connecting to my own soul and trying to connect to the words and trying to connect with my sense of the, of the bigger picture. And, what, and my yearning, I think prayer is all about yearning. And, and I think that experience can definitely be collective or personal and intimate. Basia, are there any traditional songs or poems or prayers from your childhood that feel just too sacred or for some reason, you know, too dangerous to touch and to try to transform into a new musical iteration? 
It's an interesting question. I don't think I found yet a text like that, that I feel like, I feel like the more complex or the more that it, it inspires an emotion in me, the more I want to I wanna go there. I want to make, I want to find what it is inside that makes me want to express it. What made me feel like that? Yeah. I love the brass band that comes uh, at the end of the last song on the album. It's a little bit like ska meets New Orleans. And uh, I wonder what's that song about and how did that element come into the whole thing? First of all, that, that song, Shebish Leflenu, was supposed to be on Haran, which was my previous Pharaoh's Daughter album, except the producer working on it at some point during the process says, you know what, I cannot have an, a song called Shebish Leflenu on a record that I produce. Why? What does it mean? He, no, it means from the depths, you know, the dark, the lowest. But it doesn't matter what it means. He, he, he's, he's from Belgium. He's not Jewish. He just hated the word. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like, I can't pronounce it. And every time I hear it, it's just not a beautiful word, you know? Well, I artfully dodged it. <laughs> <laughs> you did artfully dodge it. So <laughs> um, that song um, has so the, the, there's an energy. My father used to sing that song during Pesach, like at the end of the thing, and he would be totally drunk and messed up at that point, and he would do, you know, this real intensity, you know. And there's a traditional one that I grew up with like that, and then I created a different melody for it. But I wanted, I wanted to transition the new melody that I had and kind of just reference the old world melody. The producer I worked with named Jamshid Sharifi, he's such an amazing composer. He composed all those string lines and all those uh, brass lines, and he was able to like really like layer the music in a certain way. Um, so when we got to that part, like we just we just wanted to make it kind of dancey and fun and like loose and let it just like let the record go. You know, I don't get to do that much in my work, but this was an opportunity and we took it. And um, and the, the the guys who are singing the Sheb Shaflenu at the end, the traditional version, are people who also left the Satmar Hasidic world. Um, and it was great to have them bring the actual flavor of how it's sung in the communities that I grew up in. I love it. Let's listen to it a little bit. Basia Sector, thank you so much for being with us and for letting us come over and talk to you. Thank you for coming. Basia Sector is the founder and lead singer of Pharaoh's Daughter. Pharaoh's Daughter also includes Matthias Kunzli on percussion, 
Uri Sharlin on keyboards, Daphna Moore on recorder, Jamshid Sharifi on synthesizer, Yuval Leon on drums, Shanir Blumenkranz on bass, and Meg Okura on violin. It's a great album. It's called Dumia. It's out now. Go get it. So, everybody, here's the thing. We want more people to hear this podcast. We think it's a great podcast, and we think that every podcast we do is great. So what I'm going to ask is this. Share it with your friends and family and encourage them to subscribe to Vox Tablet on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast browser is the one that you like. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Thank you so much for listening. Shana Tova. Shana Tova.